Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and the novel we're discussing today is partially set in a bookshop. So this reminds me of one of my favorite books that I've read in the last 12 months, The Lost and Found Bookshop by Susan Wiggs, also set in a bookshop in San Francisco. And it's in this rambling old building, and the owner of the bookshop actually owns the building, which is, you know, it's one of the tricks they say, like, if you're a bookstore owner, like, own the building, because then they'll never jack the rent on you. (laughs) And I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and... I was trying to think if I've read a book that's set in a bookstore like this one is. I don't know that I have, or at least it's not coming to mind. But this book did sort of remind me of a story written by Joe Hill, past guest of the podcast. Love Joe. We love Joe. It's called Late Returns, um, and it's in his collection Full Throttle. And it's um, it's set in like a library bookmobile. So sort of a similar or, or adjacent to a bookstore, I guess. Um, love the bookmobile. Book yeah. On today's show, a bookseller at a mystery bookstore publishes a blog about novels that each depict a perfect murder, only to learn years later that a killer out there is staging murders off the mysteries on his list. We'll be talking about the suspense novel Eight Perfect Murders today, and later in the show, we'll be joined by author Peter Swanson. Guys, before we go into the abridged, I just want to do a shout out to my mom. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, mom. Aw, happy birthday, Tavia's mom. And now we present to you Eight Perfect Murders Abridged. Mal is a widower who owns a mystery bookstore in Boston. He spends most of his time helping customers and petting the shop's cat, a ginger named Nero. Evenings are spent drinking with one of two buddies, an ex-cop named Marty and the shop's co-owner, Brian Murray, a -a book-a-year crime writer. His life takes an interesting turn when he's contacted by Gwen, an FBI agent, who tells him she thinks someone is committing a series of murders. Those murders are based off a blog post Mal wrote years ago in which he listed eight books he thought described perfect murders. As Maul tells us the story, which is called a memoir right after the dedication page, it's clear that everyone has secrets, even Maul. Not only that, but the murderer he's chosen as his victim is someone that used to be a regular customer in Maul's bookstore. Is the killer circling in on Maul, trying to frame him, or what? Maul and Gwen travel to the scene of the crime to discover that the killer has left a copy of each of the eight books from the list on the bookshelves of his victim. Will Mal and Gwen find the killer before more lives are lost? So, Eliza, what did you think of this book? I love a good murder mystery. This was super fun. And it's set in New England, which is where I'm from. I know Boston really well and even have family in the town in Maine where one of the murders takes place. So it was really fun to read about all these places in the context of these murders. So I read this book in two big gulps. I sat down one night and read half of it, and then the next day I read the next half. This book is a total page turner. We don't read a lot of suspense for this show, and I really enjoyed this book. Yeah, this book definitely made me think a lot about Agatha Christie books, which I read a ton when I was a kid, mostly like in middle school, and haven't really revisited yet as an adult. But it sort of reignited my appreciation for the genre and some of the classics that I haven't read yet. I agree. This is definitely an homage to the genre. Uh, The author clearly has injected some of his 
love of all of these old classics into the book. It is a total book lover's book, right? They're referenced throughout. Half the book takes place in a bookshop. And I kept imagining Mysterious Bookshop, which is here in New York City. I don't know if that's the store that Peter based the book off of, but it was completely in my mind every time we were in Old Devils that I was in Mysterious Bookshop. Yeah, yeah. This book definitely made me nostalgic for normal, non-pandemic times, bookstore browsing, the sort of cozy, musty smell of an old bookstore and you know, the regular customers and the quirky booksellers, all of it. Um, I definitely can't wait to get back into bookstores. I have done some, you know, socially distanced, masked bookstore browsing, but it's not quite the same thing. You can't linger as as you normally would. So I can't wait to get back into some bookstores. Yeah, I'm curbside pickup girl all the way right now. I would be remiss if I did not mention how Peter Swanson plays with the trope of the unreliable narrator. Mm. Sometimes he even directly addresses the reader while the narrator does. I really liked that. It would always sort of take me a little bit outside of the book and make me feel like I had this relationship with Maul whenever he would address, air quotes, me. That's it. That's all I got for you. <laughs> I have no follow-up. <laughs> Well, Tavia, I'm really excited to talk to Peter, and I'm so glad that we read this, you know, murder mystery book. It was such a fun pick. I think we should toast with a glass of port in honor of a key scene in the book. Ooh, I love that. Cheers. Cheers. I wanted to remind you guys that we love to hear from you. You can post reviews of the podcast and join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on this show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the audiobook of Peter's new book, which is called Every Vow You Break. Today we're joined by Peter Swanson, whose book Eight Perfect Murders is out now. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so, so happy to have you here. Hi, Eliza. Thank you for having me. Hi, Tavia. Hi. So this book is in many ways an homage to the mystery and suspense genre. What inspired you to structure a book around other books? Well, the inspiration was really when the idea came to me. I mean, I'm always thinking about classic mysteries because it's my favorite thing to think about. And when I came up with the idea for this book, and this was a rare instance where the book just fell into my lap almost completely whole. It's never happened before. It'll probably never happen after. But I was taking a walk and I was thinking of I was trying to come up with a good murder idea for a story I was working on, and I was going through classic books that had what I thought were really clever ideas for murders. And um, I suddenly had this thought, you know, what if someone created a list of the best, most ingenious murders in classic crime fiction? And then I thought, well, what if someone published that list and then someone else used that list to do real crimes? And I was like, oh, there's a book. And I was so happy because not only did I think it was potentially a good idea, but it also meant that for research, I was just going to be, you know, delving into all my uh, favorite crime reads and rereading and reading new things and, you know, all the type of reading that I love to do. That's awesome. The list in the book really inspired me to sort of go back to some of my favorites. I haven't read, I haven't revisited Agatha Christie in a long time, for example. And um, so I have my work cut out for me. She's always worth a reread. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's time. So did you have a certain store in mind when you were writing about Old Devils? 
Well, there used to be a, a mystery bookstore in the Boston area called Kate's Mystery Books, run by Kate Mattis, who actually recently died. Before she died, she had shut down the store. And I still kick myself to this day. I, I was friends with Kate. Just, I mean, I used to go in there all the time. This was before I was a published author. But I kick myself for not just buying up all her stock. But at the time, you know, I didn't have room for it. I'm not sure I have room for it now, but I still wish I had. So there's currently not a, a, a used mystery bookstore in the Boston area. And I've thought of starting one. I have a potential partner who might want to start one with me. But, you know, it's a lot of work. It was a lot less work doing a fictional one in my book. Um, so so I opted for that. So it was just, it was um, really fun. But yeah, currently there's no um, bookstore like Old Devils um, in Boston. So I read Eight Perfect Murders during a blizzard. We just had a blizzard here in, the, in New York, which was so apt because the book is set in winter. And in fact, there's a snowstorm at the very beginning of the book. And reflecting back on the weather, I couldn't, imagined your novel happening in the summer. And I'm just wondering, I'm sure you chose it for a reason, but like, why did you choose winter in Boston as your setting? Well, I definitely chose Boston because this is where I live. And most of my books at least take part partly in the Boston area. So in terms of seasons, whenever I'm starting a book, I always think to myself, what is this book? Is this a summer book, a spring book, a fall book, or a winter book? And occasionally I have books that, that cut across seasons, but usually not. Um, for whatever reason, this one was very obvious to me that it was a winter book because um, it was an inside book. I mean, it was it was about reading. It was about being inside a bookstore um, since, it you know, and as soon as I thought this is a winter book, I said, thought it opens up on a blizzard. And that's, you know, the introduction to the FBI agent arriving at the store. He's surprised that someone's coming to the door. So. I couldn't help but think as I was reading Mal's character, you know, he reflects back on his lifelong sort of reading that he's accumulated over the years. And it's actually really interesting because he's gotten to a point in his life where he's not actually reading very much crime fiction anymore. And he's sort of pretending to have read all the new releases and everything like that, which I thought was very funny. But I wondered if you imbued Mal's reading history with some of your own childhood reading memories at all. So um, I have a lot of readers in my books in general. Um, so I've had other books where, where characters talk about the books they love. And um, I go at it. Um, obviously, I, I, I think obviously I'm thinking of books that I love, but then I try and think of them as characters. And I put in some books that either I haven't read or are, are not particular favorites of mine just because they're fictional characters. So when I started writing the portions in Eight Perfect Murders about Mal's reading history, I started to kind of include a few things that weren't really my favorites and it felt wrong. And I just realized that ultimately Mal is me as a reader. So everything that Mal talks about his reading history and all that is actually quite autobiographical. This is by far my most autobiographical novel, except for everything that happens to him and everything he does, obviously. <laughs> but, but in terms of him as him as a reader, and also the way he talks about it, and what it means to him and how he feels about it is definitely me. And so I made a decision early on that basically, when he says these are the my favorite novels, they're also my favorite novels. So um, there's there's very little fictionalizing in, in that department, well, except that I still read crime novels. I was going to ask if you, if you I do. Still well, keep he up. has a he has a reason why he doesn't like to read them, and I don't have that reason. So, yeah, I still do, obviously. Sticking with the book theme, the scenes in Old Devil's bookstore were so vivid. I love stories set in bookshops. Have you ever been a bookseller? 
Yes, I was a bookseller for many years. So I worked at a bookstore called Wordsworth Bookstore in Harvard Square that was open, I want to say, from the mid to late 80s up until maybe 2000 something. And um, it's not like Old Devils. It was um, a new release bookstore and quite busy and had everything and had quite a number of employees. But I loved it. It's, it was definitely my favorite of my jobs um, prior to the one I currently have. And the character of the slightly annoying customer in Eight Perfect Murders is actually based on a real person from, from back then. That. Again, not the plot specifics, but the actual character. <laughs> um, and I have, you know, like any bookseller, I have lots of great stories, but I, but I love that job. I applied a few times to be a bookseller, and they never hired me. So my revenge is I went to work in book publishing. There you go. I applied <laughs> at Borders back when, um, way back when, and didn't get hired. And they gave you a, a quiz when you went to Borders, you know, a, a literature quiz. You know, who wrote Great Gatsby or whatever. It was, and, and I aced it, and then I didn't get the job, and I'm, I'm old and a grudge. But um, Sure. But yeah, but Wordsworth was a um, great place to work. So I want to dive into a little bit of what I sort of thought of as one of the central relationships in the book. There's a few really interesting dynamics that that Mel has with other characters, but I want to ask about Gwen, who is just a reminder, the FBI agent who um, comes knocking at the beginning of the book and sort of ropes Matt. She's the one who sort of made the connection between the list and the murders and wants to sort of get Mal's help and also suss him out. It sort of seemed like there was a little bit of tension between them. And I sort of was hoping that that relationship might end up in a different place. And I was curious um, if you considered having their relationship become more personal. Um. I did briefly. Um, I think Mel is a very protective person who's trying to skirt through life, not having personal connections. So I didn't think it made sense to go there. But Gwen was an interesting um, person to write because it could have been her story. You could reimagine this entire story being told through her. She, you know, she's investigating these string of murders. Um, she finds this guy who works at a bookstore, and then you'd see Mal through her eyes, and she'd be like, this guy seems, I don't know if he seems suspicious or whatever. But I mean, but ultimately, it was Mal's story that I was telling, and um, I liked the character of Gwen. And I'd be, she piqued my interest, and I was kind of curious like where she would go from the book and if she could ever show up in another book, because she was interesting to me. And I think she was probably interesting to Mal, but again... He's trying not to become personally involved with people. So um, I didn't want to go there. Not in the cards for him. No. You can write your fan fiction if you want. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Peter Swanson, whose novel, Eight Perfect Murders, is out now. You can read more about Peter's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Peter about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Kindest Lie by Nancy Johnson. An Ivy League-educated professional black woman must return to the blue-collar town of her childhood to confront long-buried family secrets. Jodi Picoult calls its novel a deep dive into how we define family, what it means to be a mother, what secrets we owe to those we love, and what it means to grow up black. 
available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a fascinating new conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, author Peter Swanson is here with us answering questions about his novel, Eight Perfect Murders. So Peter, you play with the trope of the unreliable narrator in Eight Perfect Murders, and there's even a part in Chapter 10 where Mal mentions that unreliable narrators are suddenly popular because of, you know, Gone Girl and things like that. Why did you choose to use an unreliable narrator yourself? It's not my uh, first rodeo with the unreliable narrator trope. I love it. I love writing narrators that are not telling you the entire truth, especially for crime fiction, because it allows you so much possibilities in terms of surprises and when you reveal what you reveal. And um, I also think that in some sense, all narrators of fictional stories are unreliable because they're telling it from their perspective. Like I was just telling about, you know, Gwen and her perspective. We're, we're all, and we and I think actually, not to get too deep, um, but, you know, we're all unreliable narrators of our own lives because we tell ourselves the story of our lives and it's not necessarily how other people see our lives. We actually see that more and more with like social media and people narrating their lives. So it's just endlessly fascinating to me. And I love that. And so when I knew that Mal would be telling the story, I knew that what's funny about him is, I mean, I think he tells often thinks he's telling the truth. It's just what's really unreliable about him is when he decides to tell the reader what, um, what he knows. So he's selective in that sense, but he's not sort of throwing out entire falsehoods. So I just think it's interesting. I think as a crime writer, it gives you so many opportunities and, to me, Mal, like this is who Mal is. Um, he is constructing a narrative like we all are, and his is particularly, um, he has, you know, he has stuff to hide. So, Speaking of Mal's opinions about the genre, he sort of spouts off throughout the book. I really enjoyed the part where Malcolm jokes that reading crime novels as a teenager does not prepare you for being an adult, that real life is much less dramatic. But in your opinion, what would you say is the best quality of the mystery novel as a genre or as a concept? I mean, you know, I think about this a lot and I don't I, I don't have a clear answer. I mean, I think about crime and why it appeals to me. It combines darkness, people at their worst, people wanting to murder other people with a level of comfort at the same time. And I'm not sure what that comfort is. I mean, some of it is that in a classic crime novel, you have someone who comes along and puts the world back in order. So the book ends with Poirot um, discovering the truth and revealing all. So I think that's comforting in a way. But th it's more than that for me, because I like crime novels where there isn't a nice tied up ending. And they're comforting to me as well. Maybe it's because it's not happening to you. Maybe it's because you're at home, mm. you know, comfortable you know, tucked up in your favorite reading chair and all this sort of dastardly stuff is happening in the book you're reading. So it's very appealing that way to me. And then for whatever reason, I just, you know, very early on, I fell so in love with the genre that I just, it's really hard for me to start a book and get a couple chapters in and, you know, no one's dead yet. And I, I'm just wondering why no one's been killed. I just, I'm <laughs> really suspicious of books. It's so interesting. So you wonder why people aren't being murdered in books that aren't mysteries. When I read books now, I wonder why is no one wearing a mask? Yes. Well, that this is going to be a big issue um, 
It's already an issue. I mean, I'm thinking about it for my next book. The next book I've written um, that I'm in the process of writing, I just, I mean, I've said it in 2014 very specifically because I don't want to <laughs> deal with masks and COVID. I, I yeah, mean, yeah. that said, someone out there right now is writing a really brilliant crime novel set in the time of COVID. So author, you got to kind of make a decision. Do you ignore this? Do you casually mention people wearing masks? I don't know if you can do that. It's such a universal event. I don't, I'm not sure how people are going to handle it. I was saying to Tavia earlier that reading this book made me really nostalgic for bookstore browsing. You know, I mean, I've done some, you know, you can do like appointment shopping at the bookstore where like you're the only person in there or there's capacity limits, but it's, you don't feel like you can linger in the same way. I look forward to the day when we can do that again. And this direction of a conversation takes us into our next question, which is about your next book. Our listeners always want to hear about what's coming next. So tell us about your new book that's just coming out now. My next book is Every Vow You Break. It's in the thriller genre, like everything I write, but I'd say it's a little different than um, Eight Perfect Murders. The quick way to describe it, the elevator pitch or whatever, would be, you know, a honeymoon gone very wrong. But it's about a, um, a woman who's getting married and at her bachelorette party winds up having one last fling with someone sort of drunkenly. And then this person that um, she doesn't even know his name sort of follows her and winds up at her honeymoon. And I, I think um, without giving too much away, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg because I think there's a lot more going, and, you know, there's more sinister stuff going on underneath, but this is very much Abigail Baskin's story, who is the, the bride-to-be and then the newly married woman in the story. Cool. That sounds great. It sounds a little juicy too. <laughs> it's a little juicier because, yeah, because Mal doesn't, you know, as we already talked about, Mal's kind of an asexual, but this one's a little <laughs> a little more um, juicy, I guess is the word. It's also an island novel. And I think um, I always wanted to write a book set on an island. So The Honeymoon is this island off the coast of Maine that's quite secluded. That's just, you know, I think anyone who writes a bunch of mystery novels eventually wants to put one on an island because it's a perfect setting because you can't yeah. get off. You're isolated. It's a limited number of suspects, all sorts of stuff going on. What season is this book? It's an autumn book. It has a little bit of the end of um, summer, but it's all about the sort of changing of the seasons. They have a sort of a September, or maybe they have an early October wedding. I can't remember. But yeah, so there's a lot of talk about the, the change from summer into, into fall. Hmm. Excellent. I love murder mysteries, thrillers that are like wedding adjacent. You know, I just love the idea of like wedding season and then you come into it with this like murder mystery. It's great. Like um, Tavi was saying about growing up and having life be disappointing. I attend so many weddings and people don't get murdered at them and there, does, there doesn't, <laughs> you know, there's not great <laughs> mysteries. Nothing happens. You don't even get the, um, I, you know, I'm still waiting for them to say, if, what's the line where they go? Um, no one ever rushes in. I mean, so disappointing. That's so true. So I've been to so many weddings in the last few years. Nobody, I don't even think people are asking that anymore. No, I can't I remember people saying that. You um, just want the the person to run in from the back. A little, a little drama would be nice. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Maybe not murders. Maybe that's taking it too far. Someone objects. A runaway bride. Father of the bride has a heart attack. What else could happen? I know. Someone falls into the cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need someone to fall. I actually was at a no, I was not a, at a wedding where someone fell into the cake. I was at a wedding where um, where a bridesmaid fell into the band, and I put this in this book. Oh yes, yeah, I actually awesome. saw that. She went right off the dance floor, right into the band, and then she <laughs> and then she had to be taken away. 
that was good times. Peter, we have one final question for you. Every episode we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? So this is a book you've always meant to read or one that you started reading and never finished. So what's yours? I think it's Bleak House by Charles Dickens because I've heard from several people that it's their favorite mystery. I mean, it's a mystery novel. And I have read Charles Dickens, probably not as much as I should have being an English major. So it's a mystery novel. It's by Charles Dickens. I have this great version of it. And it's so big that I it just sort of scares me a little. So, And I'm I, whenever winter starts, I think, oh, this is my Bleak House winter. And I'm going to dig into this book. And I don't do it. So that's my white whale. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. This was um, such a fun conversation. We loved the book so much, and I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Peter Swanson, whose book, Eight Perfect Murders, is out now. To find out more about Peter's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Julia Claiborne Johnson, author of the historical and hilarious novel, Better Luck Next Time. If you want to read the book before its podcast drops, head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on the show. You can join our next conversation. We'll be speaking with Walter Thompson Hernandez, author of The Compton Cowboys, a study of real-life cowboys based out of Compton, California. If you'd like to pose a question for Walter, post them in the comments of our Book Club Girls Facebook group or email us at thegirls at bookclubgirl.com, or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, we'd like to thank Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, Lauren Richardson for taking care of our website so beautifully, and to Peter himself for setting up a microphone and recording from home. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading! She first spotted him at Bobby's Coffee Shop on 22nd Street. He was at a window seat, idly looking at his phone, a white mug in front of him. Abigail was on her way to the office for her half day, dodging pedestrians on the sidewalk, thinking about the wedding, wondering if maybe she should have invited her cousin Donald and his wife, whose name she always forgot. Her feet kept moving, but it was as though her heart had skipped a beat. It was definitely him. Same wiry frame, same beard, same high cheekbones. Even through the glare coming off the plate glass window, she recognized him right away. And she also knew that he'd come to New York City because of her. He must have. When she made it to her office and settled down at her desk, her heart still thudding, she took a moment to consider all the possibilities. First of all, why was she so sure he was here to find her? She lived in New York, not some small town that no one visited. He could be here on vacation, here to visit friends, here for work. And even if he had come here to find her, how much did he even know about her? They hadn't given each other their real names. She still only knew him as Scotty, and he knew her as Madeline. She told herself there was nothing to worry about and tried to concentrate on work.
But walking home, the nights getting darker earlier these days, she took a different route, staying off the busy avenues. She had no plans for that evening. Bruce was attending a work dinner, and she made herself an omelet, flipped through the channels, found one that was showing The Ring, the American remake with Naomi Watts. She'd watched it as a kid at a slumber party, and all the girls there had been traumatized except for Abigail, who'd fallen asleep in a brand new world, one that had movies in it that seemed designed just for her. After the credits had rolled, she sent a text to Bruce saying she was going to bed, then quickly checked her emails, ignoring one from Zoe titled, Emergency Wedding Question, and opening an email from an address she didn't recognize titled simply, Hi. Dear Madeline, I am sorry to write you like this so soon before your wedding, but I can't stop thinking about you. If you don't share similar feelings, then tell me and I promise to never bother you again. But if you do feel the same way, then maybe it's not too late to cancel the wedding. The exact halfway point between New York City and San Francisco is Wood River, Nebraska. Maybe they have a travel lodge we can meet at? Just hopeful, Scotty. She read the message through twice, an ache moving from the base of her throat down to her stomach. The email would have been bad enough, but she'd seen him earlier, in her neighborhood. Or had she? <laughs>